This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. All right, welcome back. Welcome to this hour of the program. It's Rob Brickenridge with you here. Afternoons on 770 CHQR. So uh, now with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, a similar focus to the AstraZeneca vaccine and try to better understand uh, some rare side effects that appear to be associated with the vaccine. And they, they are similar vaccines, even though Johnson & Johnson is a single-dose vaccine. Uh, but try to better understand the, these rare side effects of these uh, blood clots. And these are unique kind of blood clots, which is important. Uh, because they're associated with low platelet counts. Because theoretically, then, if your platelets are low, you should be less likely to have blood clotting. So there's there's something unique about these particular kinds of, of blood clots. Uh, so in the U.S., uh, they've had six of these reported with regard to the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And by the way, 6.8 million doses of the vaccine should be noted. Um, but the U.S. has paused uh, the use of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. The FDA is meeting to, to further discuss this today. And as Canada gets set to roll out that vaccine, we, we may get some further clarification of what we know at this point. So what, what appears to be the connection at this point? How rare are these kinds of side effects? How serious are they? And what do we know about this condition? Because these kinds of blood clots uh, do exist uh, separate from, from the vaccine. So it's not as though these are the the first time we're encountering these. Uh, so someone who uh, specializes in this area and has been uh, following all of this very closely is Dr. Theodore Warkenton, uh, professor of pathology and molecular medicine uh, at McMaster University, also an associate member of medicine at Hamilton General Hospital, Hamilton Society of Pathologists, and uh, he's written some papers uh, on this uh, very subject. He joins us on the line here this afternoon. Professor Warkenton, thank you so much for joining us here today. Welcome to the program. Nice to talk to you, Rob. So let, let's start with understanding what we're dealing with here. And I think people are, are familiar with, with blood clots and, and what blood clotting is. But we have this situation where, as mentioned, it seems counterintuitive that low platelet counts would be associated with, with blood clots. So what is happening in these, these cases? Well, it's actually a misconception that low platelets are always associated with bleeding. So there are two kinds of ways that uh, platelets can go down, and one is that they can go down because antibodies are clearing them, just making them go away, and you get very low platelet counts, and there you get bleeding. But there's another group of disorders where the platelets are actually activated, they're turned on, and in those patients, you can get blood clotting as part of the platelet count going down because it's been going down because it's being activated. So, so there's a kind of two groups. And so this vaccine-related problem is in the latter group. It's been shown that mm -hmm. these patients have antibodies that are strongly activating platelets. Is this similar then to, to the clotting that, that occurs uh, in COVID patients? Because certainly that, that can be one of the effects of the virus. 
Well, it can be, but it turns out it's very different. So clotting that you see with COVID patients, you typically do not have very dramatic uh, drop in platelet counts. It rather seems to be associated with things like high fibrinogen levels, high von Willebrand factor levels, um, um, injury to the endothelial cell, the lining cell, which the virus affects. And so that kind of clotting is very, very different. So this type of clotting that the vaccine rarely triggers is, is, is a very different, very different mechanism than the clotting you see with COVID. Do we have a good understanding of what that mechanism might be? I mean, clearly we got a, a correlation here, but, but what, what is actually happening? Do we know? Yeah, we actually have a very good understanding. And the reason okay. is, is that the COVID vaccine-associated clotting problem very closely mimics a disorder that has been known in the medical community for a few decades. And that is a disorder that I've actually spent 30 years studying called heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. So that's a very weird kind of uh, drug reaction where heparin triggers the patient to form these very strong platelet-activating antibodies. And the platelet count goes down and the patients develop unusual thromboses. And so hematologists and many kinds of doctors have been familiar with this disorder for, for quite a few years. And then about 10 years ago, we showed that rarely patients can form those kinds of antibodies, even if they've never seen heparin. And we call that spontaneous heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. So there's kind of a roadmap for these unusual blood clotting disorders that are linked to antibodies. So now comes this vaccine. And uh, about a month ago, it started to be recognized that the AstraZeneca vaccine in Europe was associated with a falling platelet count and these very unusual blood clots. So some doctors quite rightly said, well, that sounds like this funny drug reaction called heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, so let's test for it. And to their surprise, because these patients hadn't gotten heparin, these, these vaccine recipients, I should say, hadn't gotten heparin, to their surprise, these patients turned out to have strong levels of these antibodies. So that's why this peculiar syndrome has so quickly reached um, the, 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 the state we're in right now, where we now understand what these patients have. These patients, it's a rare reaction, but they have these strong antibodies in their blood that are capable of strongly activating platelets. And so because this, this, this vaccine disorder so closely mimics something we already know about, this is how it's now been uh, figured out, how we detect the antibodies, um, how we can tell whether someone actually has this specific vaccine-induced complication versus just a run-of-the-mill blood clotting, which, of course, is very common in the general population. So that's the big discovery that was reported on Friday in the New England Journal, that we know how to diagnose this rare condition. Well, and, and that's a good thing, isn't it? Well, it is a good thing, because otherwise you don't know if the vaccine is causing it. I'll give you an example. Right. A lot of people know that this rare neurologic dis- disorder called Guillain-Barre syndrome, where you can get a kind of temporary paralysis, is rarely associated with the flu vaccine. And how do they know that? Well, they know that because if you do epidemiological studies, you can see there's a little blip of a few more people developing that rare neurological problem a few weeks after vaccination. But you can't prove in any individual patient who develops that whether the vaccine actually did it or not. It, it's, it's an epidemiologic association. But in the case of this vaccine, vaccine causing this low platelet count and this dramatic blood clotting syndrome, there is a test that can show, yes, 
you have this antibody, it is causing this problem. And so this is actually a very unique feature and is one of the reasons why as, as, as vaccine recipients learn about this and look out for the symptoms, as physicians become aware of it, and we here at McMaster have a lab, uh, we've had this lab for 40 years that, that specializes in, in platelet antibodies, we're able to definitively identify the presence of these antibodies. So this is what makes this a special reaction. You know, it is rare. It's part of the conversation. Uh, yeah. Vaccine recipients and physicians need to know about it, but it's something we can test for and diagnose definitively, and we also know now how to treat this condition. Right. And importantly, that treatment would not involve heparin, which is essentially, I think, a blood thinner, but heparin would be used to treat blood clots. It would be dangerous to use it for this, though, wouldn't it? Well, potentially. This disorder is not exactly the same as heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. It's a cousin illness, and it's still unclear okay. whether heparin is, is actually effective in most or maybe all patients. So right now, because we haven't, when I say we, the medical community hasn't done quite enough work to sort that out, right now the thinking is, well, why not, you know, abundance of caution kind of concept, why not use a non-heparin anticoagulant? And there's several available in Canada. So currently, that's what's being done. But another very important treatment Maneuver is it's we know again a roadmap from this uh, rare condition autoimmune heparin induced thrombocytopenia we know that giving high dose intravenous immune globulin that is putting lots of antibodies in the patient's blood this is a product that comes from the Canadian Blood Services this product will actually inhibit the ability of the abnormal, the pathogenic antibody, to interact with the platelet and to cause the platelet activation. So unlike, you know, standard clots where you'd never treat with a high-dose immune globulin, for this particular rare condition, that's a way to, to de-escalate the condition, to, to kind of turn it off so that the blood thinning has a, has a better chance of working. So that's the, that's the concept to uh, treating this uh, new and rare disorder. Right. And it's interesting because I've seen this pointed out because, as you pointed out, heparin is associated, heparin itself, the drug is associated with the, these rare side effects, but we don't stop using heparin. We haven't taken it off the market. And maybe it's not a perfect parallel to this situation, but you know, what, what can we draw from, from that and in, in the way in which you know, we regulate uh, drugs like heparin? Well, I think that is an excellent parallel, right? So we know heparin can cause a very dangerous reaction, yet we still use it for heart surgery, vascular surgery. Every day, thousands of patients get heparin. So we just look out for the side effect, we're aware of it, et cetera. And so it's similar with the vaccine. So right now, the pandemic is, is exploding. There's lots of yeah. uh, the variants. We, we, we have just so many vaccine options. So right now, Yes, this new information is part of the equation, but we have to look at the reality of our situation. That could be different in a month with other vaccines becoming available as we learn more about this condition and so on and so forth. So it's, 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 it's certainly a moving situation. And every jurisdiction has to make its own decision. You know, what are the vaccine options? How prevalent is the, is the virus? Uh, you know, how, how bad is the pandemic? And so it becomes an informed decision. And it's really amazing that within a month of this you know, unusual new disorder being identified that we now know so much about it. I mean, it's actually extraordinary application of science and medicine to understanding this, uh, this new problem. Well, and, and this is typical, right? I mean, it's a unique situation with the vaccines, but any kind of vaccine or treatment, you're not going to do a clinical trial of, you know, several hundred thousand or, or millions of people. So the kinds of rare one in a hundred thousand, one in a million side effects, we, we tend to detect those in the real world then, don't we? 
Absolutely. So the vaccine specialists, that's what they tell me. They, you, you look for common side effects during the trials, and any time you, you uh, put out a, a new vaccine, you're, you're always looking for the rare signal afterwards. And, and as I say, what makes this remarkable is unlike almost all complications that can occur with vaccines, here you actually have a way to prove whether someone has or does not have this uh, very peculiar um, and rare side effect. So it's, it's, so it's a very special situation, and we're lucky that the McMaster Platelet Immunology Lab, which is under the direction of doctors uh, Donald Arnold and Isaac Nazi, that uh, we have the resources in Canada to be able to detect these antibodies. So we, we know how to deal with this, so we, we can treat it once it's, it's recognized. What, what, what do individuals need to, to watch for? What are, what are the warning signs of this? Well, I think the most important thing is the timing of onset. So lots of patients or lots of individuals, I shouldn't say patients, normal people who get the vaccine, they, they, they can feel unwell for a day or two, right? Uh, they get this inflammatory reaction. That's not this, this uh, complication. This complication takes a minimum of five days. So, from five, so if you call the day of receiving the vaccine day zero, if you count day five, so from day five onwards up to, say, the next several weeks, if you were to develop something unusual, so what are the features? If you develop a persisting headache, if you develop neurological symptoms or signs, blurring vision, that sort of thing, if you develop abdominal pain, if you develop pain in an extremity, or if you develop shortness of breath, those are the kinds of features that could be the, the, the clue that you're developing this. And if that's the case, then you, you phone or, or contact your physician. Uh, if you're quite concerned, you go to the emergency room. And it's, it's an easy diagnosis to make because the doctor ought to order a complete blood count, which tells you the platelet count. And they order something called a D-dimer, which is a test of your coagulation activation. And if you have an unexpectedly low platelet count, and if you have an unexpectedly high D-dimer, that's the, the clinical picture. And then the physician would also investigate your symptoms. If you have abdominal pain or headache, they would do the appropriate imaging studies to see if there's blood clotting going on. And then if that is identified, then you would be treated with an anticoagulant and likely with the high-dose intravenous immune globulin I mentioned before. All right. Well, we'll leave it there. Really appreciate your expertise on, on this, and uh, thanks so much for joining us here today. You're welcome. All right. All the best. That is Dr. Theodore Workington. He is uh, professor of pathology and molecular medicine at uh, McMaster University, a clinical and laboratory hematologist and transfusion medicine director at Hamilton General Hospital. I mean, I could just keep running down the whole CV. Suffice it to say that this is a leading expert in this area and some great insight on, on you know, what it is we're dealing with here and our knowledge at this point. So we do have, as he says, pretty good understanding of what this connection might be. And we're going to get to a point where we're going to have a significant number of adults, majority of adults, who have had at least one vaccine. But we're still going to have relatively few people who are fully vaccinated. Right, so two doses plus two weeks essentially is is the uh, formula for getting to the point of being considered fully vaccinated. Now, with limited supply, Canada is taking the approach of trying to get the most bang for the buck. And certainly, when it comes to especially the the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, and I think to to some extent too the AstraZeneca vaccine, uh, there there is a decent amount of protection conveyed by a first dose. And the thinking being that if we apply that level on a widespread basis. That's going to go a long way in, in knocking down cases significantly and, you know, keeping people out of hospitals and preventing severe outcomes. 
But I think it's important to understand, you know, the difference between partially vaccinated and fully vaccinated. And also, I know there's a lot of questions from people about, well, what changes for me after I get vaccinated? Do I have to keep living life the same way? Are are certain activities maybe uh, less risky than they were beforehand? And there's probably some room, I think, you know, without creating a whole separate set of rules for vaccinated people to at least have some kind of guidelines or recommendations on that. But joining us to talk a bit more about all of these these important questions, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, Dr. Eleanor Fish, uh, Professor of Immunology at the University of Toronto, Associate Chair in International Collaborations and Initiatives and Emeritus Scientist at University Health Network in Toronto. Dr. Fish, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. My pleasure. Thank you. It is interesting because there's a significant difference between partially and fully vaccinated, but there's also uh, a real benefit to being partially vaccinated at this point. But do you think uh, health officials, are we doing a good job of of conveying all of these nuances to Canadians? Uh, In a word, no. (laughs) (laughs) So um, when we talk about partially protected, that all vests on the dosing being according to the um, the vaccines. So we have data from the clinical trials for Pfizer and Moderna that show that between the first dose and the second dose, and, you know, that's three or four weeks, Mm -hmm. there is partial protection um, based on what were the circulating strains at that time, and that as soon as you got your second dose, you then got that incredible 90 to 95% protection from severe disease and death, right? So that's amazing. Um, And with the AstraZeneca, um, we know that you can extend that dosing schedule to anywhere from four to 12 weeks, um, and the same thing, you'll get that amazing full protection when you get your second dose. And, and what people have to appreciate that this isn't like a traditional vaccine where you get one dose, you're fully protected, and then either a year or two years or whatever, you come in for a booster shot just to maintain that good level of protection. These are completely different vaccines. For these vaccines, you have what's called a prime first dose. And there's some suggestion that there's, you know, partial protection from severe disease and death that after two to three, you know, three to, depending on, on the vaccine, when you come in with your second dose, you then get the full protection. What we don't know is extending that out 16 weeks, um, whether that partial protection persists or whether it falls off. Uh, in which case you're not protected at all. So my feeling is, and it's it's not just myself, but many of my colleagues who are immunologists and who understand the immune response to a vaccine, what we're saying is that given that we don't know what that partial protection really looks like and how durable it is up to 16 weeks, we recommend that... um, you should behave as if you're not vaccinated at all and keep wearing your mask, keep your distance, um, follow all the recommendations that um, are in place by public health. 
It is certainly a strategy. And I'm sure born people of, don't want right. to hear that. But that's well, the reality. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, and, and as I say, I think this this is obviously a strategy born of necessity, and, and hopefully supply will will give us some more flexibility on on those uh, intervals. But I, I do wonder this because I've seen different assessments of this that. How how solid is the, the 21 or the 28 days that the companies came up with? Because I've seen some suggestions that those are kind of arbitrary numbers to begin with. What's your understanding? No, no, I, you know, so I, ha- I have to you know be, be very clear here. They're not arbitrary yeah. at all. So the, the clinical trials, which were undertaken prior to these being approved, mm-hmm. they the companies, um, based on the fact that these were uh, different vaccines, they ran their trials and they looked at 21 days and, as you said, 28 days. And based on those trials, they found the levels of protection from severe disease and death were incredible. I mean, these are really high levels of protection, you know, 95%. Yeah. So that's how these vaccines were approved, based mm-hmm. on those dosing schedules. Now, maybe... In a year from now, in five years from now, there'll be other trials which will say, well, you don't really need that kind of dosing schedule. We can adjust it. But these vaccines were approved and were shown to give that kind of protection based on those dosing schedules. So that's why, you know, we're we're recommending that you adhere to those the problem is for partial, yes, between that, you know, three to four week period between the first and the second dose, there, these individuals were tested for various immune response measurements and found that there was this partial protection. Okay. So within the period between the first and second dose, it was fair to say that there was some partial protection. What many of us are saying is, we don't know how long that partial protection persists. So um, saying that you can extend it out to 16 weeks was based on zero evidence. The 12-week uh, interval that the, that the UK has been relying on, uh, and, and interestingly enough, that, that's probably uh, an ideal interval when it comes to the AstraZeneca vaccine. But what, what do we make what, of... You know, yeah. And that, that vaccine is the one that's been the major one that's been used in the UK. Right. And they had undertaken, you know, their, their clinical data from their trials demonstrated this isn't an RNA vaccine, it's a DNA vaccine, and it's being, you know, it, it's a slightly different um, kind of vaccine altogether from the Moderna and the Pfizer's. Um, their clinical data and their trials showed that extending from four weeks to 12 weeks, they still got that full protection at 12 weeks. So, you know, again, it was evidence-based data that they followed. And the same in their um, their real-world data. You know, people are getting their second shot of AstraZeneca in the UK between 10 and 12 weeks. You know, some time ago, it was even less. So they're falling within the um, the trial uh, procedures, protocol. Right. It, it did appear as though that, that NASI was leaning toward, and they haven't done so yet, but adjusting the recommendation for certain groups, either based on age or, or underlying conditions, to recommend that that interval be shortened. Do you think and we, we need to at least take that step? Um, that was because, sorry to interrupt you, that was because a, a number of us 
uh, alerted NASI um, and Theresa Tam, a number of, of individuals, public health uh, senior people, to the emerging evidence that, in fact, after a first dose, cancer patients, transplant patients, and individuals who what we call are immunocompromised, their immune system isn't as robust as yours and mine, um, their level of protection was significantly less than, you know, healthy adults. And, and we, you know, provided them with that evidence um, and emerging evidence, um, which appropriately they, they took into consideration and suggested that that uh, the dosing interval should now conform with what the product monograph says for each of those vaccines. So, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, badmouth NASI or, or, or whatever the public health um, guidelines are. All I, all I am saying and a number of my colleagues are saying is that you make decisions based on evidence. And as new evidence emerges which it does all the time during this pandemic. You have to be nimble and shift and adjust, you know, what you're doing as we're doing now. Um, but this also applies, I feel very strongly, to vaccine dosing schedules. We have had in Canada over a million confirmed cases uh, of COVID-19. Obviously, many of those are, are children, but hundreds of thousands of adults who have had the virus have mm-hmm. been recovered. Are, are you of the opinion then that that for those individuals in the question of vaccination, that the, the infection is the primer and the first dose would be the boost and that they may only need one dose. Yeah, so that's, again, clinical studies uh, are ongoing now just to look at that, um, mm-hmm. to see what their, you know, there, there are certain measurements you can take in the blood which will tell you what people's antibody levels are like, what their T-cell levels are like, and these all contribute to your ability to uh, protect yourself from infection. So we can follow individuals who've been infected, and that's going on in in clinical trials, see what the level of those immune measurements are in in their blood, give them a vaccination, and then ask the question, how long does that perhaps boost uh, in those immune levels persist and do they actually need a second dose? So you have to do the studies to find the answer, but it seems a reasonable um, you know, theory that yes, indeed, that probably they will only require that prime, but I don't know. Well, and, and yeah, they, these are important decisions, obviously. I mean, going in that direction would potentially free up additional doses to, to hopefully shorten mm-hmm. the interval for others. But we are obviously, this is, uh, you know, a situation due to the um, the circumstances we find ourselves in. In terms of having limited supply, this would be a lot easier uh, to make these decisions if, if we had sufficient numbers. So um, are, are we sort of, are we stuck with this for now? Or, or what, what might you advise NASI? And, well, and you know, it's, it's, you know, <laughs> Nobody's asking Eleanor Fish for her advice. <laughs> um, so my, the point is, you know, with this, quote, partial protection that may not, you know, may or may not persist out to um, 16 weeks, we don't know. Um, what, what are the risks um, that, that might exist if that partial protection wanes? And the risk is with these new variants of concern that are highly transmissible, that you'll have 
significant community infection in those who who are partially protected. <laughs> in other words, you, you, you still are able to become infected once you've had your first dose, all right? Um, and maybe even we would be um, running the risk of having more variants developing. So I think there are so many unknowns that, you know, we're taking, um, Canada is, is, is taking a gamble and uh, hopefully we're, we're monitoring this very carefully and very closely. And as you said, hopefully we'll get sufficient doses uh, coming in, supplies, that that window of 16 weeks will shrink to, you know, much less, hopefully within the product monocraft timeframe. That would be my preference. We shall see. In the meantime, we'll leave it there. Dr. Fish, appreciate your insight on all of this. Thanks so much for making some time for us here. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. All the best. Uh, that is uh, Dr. Eleanor Fish, Professor of Immunology at the University of Toronto. And so her thoughts on uh, one dose versus two dose and how you should uh, think of yourself in terms of um, immunity, that these are excellent vaccines, as she says. And it's not to undermine the vaccines. They are excellent vaccines. Once you are fully vaccinated, that is some substantial protection. I mean, again, not 100 percent, but pretty damn good. So her advice would be for now that if you have one dose to to still act as though you do right now. But we got a situation now again with the vaccine, similar to what we've encountered with AstraZeneca and some uh, issues that have been raised about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. It's approved here, hasn't yet been deployed here. We haven't had any supply arrive yet. That was supposed to happen at the end of the month. But the FDA in the U.S. has put a pause on the Johnson & Johnson vaccine as they look into some possible rare side effects. And all of those words are important here. Rare side effects should be investigated and acknowledged. But I think at the same time, we need to convey, you know, that that level of risk and what it is. And maybe we're not good at, you know, conveying or understanding uh, risk benefit analysis. So what does that leave us with regard to these vaccines and what to do moving forward? How serious to take this? How it changes our recommendations? Obviously, the AstraZeneca vaccine is uh, for the moment limited to those between the ages of 55 and 64. And that may change going forward. And we may have some recommendations on the Johnson & Johnson vaccine before it arrives here later this month. So joining us to talk a bit more about some of these developments and uh, how things are progressing here in Alberta at this point. Uh, very pleased to welcome to the program uh, here this afternoon, uh, Professor uh, Lenora Saxinger, Associate Professor of the Department of Medicine and Division of Infectious Diseases at the University of Alberta. Dr. Saxinger, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. All right, so let me get your thoughts on, you know, the, the developments today and kind of that, that fine balance in, you know, taking all of this seriously, but but also not overreacting. You know, it's it's an interesting thing because even a shadow of a doubt can really actually affect the way people approach the whole idea of vaccination. And I remain mystified as to why we hold vaccines to a higher standard than absolutely everything else we do in medicine. Like there's a lot of treatments I give people without really thinking all that much about it. And they take them without really thinking all that much about it. Um, you know, you get an antibiotic for an infection because it needs to be treated. And there's a one in a million risk of some rare side effect. 
it doesn't prevent you from taking the antibiotic because you need it. And I, and I think that we sort of lost the same viewpoint on the whole vaccine story. And, and people are really primed to be anxious around it. And I, I find that very difficult and kind of regretful because these are really, really amazing vaccines. They're very good. Right. And I mean, you know, I, I think there's there's, you know, a danger in any sort of perception that health authorities are, are sweeping things under the rug. And so, I mean, obviously, we, we don't want that. But you're right. I mean, we we don't seem to have communicated all of this very well. And and and, and so I do wonder the impact of that when it comes to to vaccine hesitancy, which is the bigger danger, do you think? Well, I mean, I, I think you can make a, a extremely clear and cut and dried argument that COVID risk is much, much higher than any of the so far reported vaccine risks. And in fact, if the vaccine risks were higher than the COVID risk, they wouldn't be licensed and we wouldn't be using them. And, um, and you know, there's, there, there's very good data behind that. But again, I think where things have really, the wheels have come off are in the risk communication. Um, and, and there's also a lot of just flat out misinformation spreading, like really malignant, nasty misinformation around vaccines that I think is, are, is making people feel very anxious. In fact, when, you know, most people, when I have anyone tell me they've received their first dose of the vaccine, it actually lightens my heart, like measurably every time I hear someone say that. Oh, yeah. And and so it's just, it's just such a strange um, situation to be in. Like, how do we, how do we actually get back on track with this? Yeah, and, and I don't know. I mean, I, I'm, I'm hopeful. Maybe I'm just I'm trying to be optimistic that, you know, by, by being seen to taking this seriously and, you know, coming up with some potential responses, you know, recognizing where there, there might be that, that risk for some for these, these kinds of rare side effects, better understanding this, having some guidelines that reflect all of that, that in, in the longer run, maybe that could be good. But... Um, like I say, maybe I'm just trying to grab onto some, some floating optimism here. Well, I think transparency is very important. And like saying, you know, rare side effects are rare side effects. And, and I think everyone also has to remember that everything, if we're trying to vaccinate basically a whole population, every health event that was going to happen and roll into the emergency room over that period of time is probably still going to do it. Only now it's going to be after a vaccine. And so it's very important to try to sort out what we think is a vaccine signal and what's not a vaccine signal. If it's a vaccine signal, you weigh that against the risk of the disease and the risk in that individual person. And we are getting a better idea of, you know, for some of these very rare side effects, if we can identify a group of people in whom that seems to be, you know, slightly less rare, they would be at higher risk of that small side effect, uh, mm-hmm. side effect risk. Then, then we can fine tune it and then we can confidently offer it to everyone else. And I think that's kind of where we're trying to go with this. The problem is that every new headline that comes out that's kind of irresponsible just sows more doubt in people's minds. Well, if nothing else, and I saw this point made today, and I guess it's a valid point, any notion that health authorities are, are just rushing vaccines onto the market and they don't care about potential side effects, I mean, this shows the exact opposite. The United States is prepared to slam the brakes on a vaccine rollout based on, you know, six cases out of almost 7 million doses, right? Yeah, I don't actually think that's a great call, but I think it's in response to that public scrutiny, honestly. Like, I mean, that that's still a low risk, but, you know, yeah. pausing to kind of sort out the data and make sure we're not missing something, I think is important. And transparency is important. And taking the vaccine reports 
seriously like any adverse events and being able to say you know is that different than what we'd expect in this population over this time all those things remain super important and and you know the the idea of the speed is is interesting to me because the last big vaccine trials that i remember were from the new shingles vaccine and it took them four years to get over 30,000 people into that trial to be able to see if the vaccine worked. And it took like a couple months to get over 30,000 people into the trial to see if the COVID vaccine works. Right. So there, there's a lot of practical reasons why this was fast, and none of it involves cutting corners. Right. Well, yeah. And, and that's absolutely true. And that's worth emphasizing here. And again, I mean, you know, the kind of rare side effects, the sort of one in a million side effects, there's, there's going to be no clinical trial for anything. That that's going to enroll that many people. So, you know, you expect that once drugs or treatments or vaccines are deployed in the real world, that you are going to be watching for this kind of thing, right? Yeah, and they've got really good systems set up to watch for them. And now they're taking a really precautionary stance and halting and assessing and getting more data. But I guess the only downside is every time you halt and assess and get more data, if that's not communicated, I think with the right degree of nuance, which is really hard these days. Honestly, nuance is not something we do anymore. Um, it, it becomes really hard to kind of get people's trust back, except for to continue the transparency and continue being you know, very, very uh, open about why things are being decided and when there's a pause and, and what we really think the risks are compared to the risks of COVID, which remain like really, really high in Alberta right now. Like we have really high active case rates um, with aggressively spreading infections in many jurisdictions. And we're starting to see more people come into hospital and all of that is preventable. Well, it's the thing. I mean, look, I, I had COVID last year and I mean, fortunately, I was fine. But I recognized that, you know, there was uh, a risk of hospitalization or a risk of death. There, there was a far greater risk to me compared to to uh, any of these vaccines. And, and I think maybe we lose sight of that. I saw a stat today that, you know, for hospitalized COVID patients, the risk of blood clots can be as high as one in five, which was, yeah, was a pretty frightening number. Yeah. Yeah. No. It's it's and it's it's no cakewalk for people who get severely ill. Um, so so you know remembering that nothing there's no zero risk option right now, right? There's a risk of the disease or there's the risk of the vaccine, and I can say right now based on everything I know that the risk of the disease is much much higher. Well, yeah, I mean, especially at the moment, given what we're dealing with. Um, so hopefully we'll get some of this sorted out before the Johnson & Johnson vaccines arrive later this month, because I think the potential of a one-dose, a one-and-done vaccine could make a real difference right now. Uh, in the meantime, things are starting to improve uh, on the vaccine front. Obviously, we're, we're trying to play catch-up against the, uh, the surge in the virus and the variants at the moment. So what's your assessment of kind of the, the crossroads we're at here? Well, I mean, it, it really is a race, and uh, I've been really kind of impressed with the vaccination numbers recently. I do notice that it's quite patchy across Alberta, so some places have had more access or more uptake or some combination of those things. And so we'll have to pay attention to that because we might end up with a situation where under-vaccinated areas are going to have higher COVID risk during this kind of rollout phase, and, and people should probably be somewhat mindful of that. Um, and, you know, the variants are proving themselves very capable at staying a step or two ahead of us. Mm -hmm. At the moment, we haven't yet crushed the healthcare system, but, you know, the early uptick in hospitalizations and early uptick in really sick younger people have got people a little spooked right now, honestly. And so everyone's watching those case numbers and hoping they start coming down really quickly. 
Yeah, and, and in the meantime, obviously, we're, we're trying to maximize the resources we have. And we, I think we are asking the vaccines to do a lot of heavy lifting right now. And we're hoping for a lot of bang for the buck in terms of the first dose first strategy. Do, do you have concerns about, you know, the, the risks inherent in that? I mean, in a perfect world, we could do the, the two dose on schedule and, and that wouldn't be a concern. It is born of necessity to some degree. But what are your thoughts on that? You know, I think for the vast majority of people, the first dose protection is really solid. And and so that's mm-hmm. really what we're doing is we're trying to extend the first dose protection to everyone and give everyone a chance at avoiding hospitalization and death, um, which, you know, seems good. And and that, that there is emerging data, which we'll have to adjust to, um, that for some people, that first dose protection is not as strong. So people with active cancer, very, very elderly people, if they're not getting the first dose protection that we actually think is reasonable, then they would be people that would be selected for a faster second dose. But a lot of that data came out in a super preliminary fashion. And so it's being reviewed and there is time to adjust. I suspect we're going to end up identifying subgroups of people where, you know, a short interval second dose is important and then a whole bunch of other people where a delayed interval second dose is perfectly reasonable and that way we would be able to protect everyone you know optimally and actually also help hopefully reduce community transmission which protects even those people who haven't had a chance yet yeah well i mean those there were those who have had it who do have some level of of immunity already but what do you make of the uh, the evidence so far suggesting that even uh one dose, like a, a one dose of the mRNA vaccine might actually be sufficient for those who have recovered. And for those who have recovered, that actually looks pretty, pretty compelling. And so I wouldn't be surprised if those people might not, mess, like they might be self-boosting, if that makes sense. Right. And, well, yeah, so, exactly. and so they might, they might not actually need a second dose, in which case that dose could go to someone who, who's non-immune. And so uh, all of those things actually mean that the vaccination program is going to continue to be shifting, which people do find annoying, like what's the story? But really, it's just adapting to evolving evidence. And that's yeah. what we have to do. So yeah. no one no one take anything that we say right now as being the go-forward gospel truth yet because we might end up having to shift. Right. Absolutely. Well said. We'll leave it there. Uh, appreciate the insight, Dr. Saxinger. Thanks for making some time for us here today. My pleasure. Thank you. Much appreciated. Take care. There you go. That's uh, Dr. Lenore Saxinger, the University of Alberta, infectious disease uh, specialist, associate professor in the Department of Medicine and uh, the Division of Infectious Diseases at the University of Alberta. So some interesting thoughts uh, on the vaccine front. What makes a great country? How do we rank countries, compare countries? Now, look, I, I think, you know, we're, we're a patriotic bunch in this country. Maybe we manifest it uh, differently than they do in other countries. Uh, and I think the places we choose to live are kind of indicative of you know, how we feel about that place. So I think the fact that we are Canadians, we live in Canada, is indicative that, you know, we think we got a pretty decent country here. It's not perfect, mind you. But are we the best? I mean, are we number one? Well, at least according to the uh, latest rankings uh, from U.S. News and World Report, uh, done in conjunction with the uh, BAV Group and the Warden School at the, the University of Pennsylvania, just published uh, their latest rankings. You can read it for yourself at uh, usnews.com. So, yeah, let's uh, unpack this further then. How do we go about determining what the best countries are? What kind of criteria go into uh, making that kind of a determination? So how proud should we be of this result? Like I say, usnews.com for more. But joining us on the line here this afternoon is Kevin Drew, U.S. News uh, World Report Assistant Managing Editor for International News. Kevin, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. 
Thank you. Great to be here. All right. Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of Canadians uh, feeling pretty pumped up, puffing our chests out, maybe some swelled heads across the country today. But um, let's let's take a step back here because this is a, an annual report that you guys put out. So what, what goes into this? How do you go about determining these rankings? Sure. So every year, uh, U.S. News, along with the partners you named, we send out a global survey uh, to people around the world, uh, Europe, the Americas, Africa, Asia, uh, Asia Pacific, and we ask people to basically rank countries on dozens and dozens of attributes. And typically, Canada does, does pretty well. But where the um, what what these attributes really get at is how um, perceptions about countries really impact impact a nation's economy, um, companies, individuals, their decisions to to move to a country, to visit a country, to study in a country. All of that in, impacts the country's economy, and this is the largest kind of study like this out there. It's, it's bigger than academic studies, and so this is the sixth version, and we're starting to see some trends. Canada has always done well, but this is the first year it's been seen at overall as the number one country in the world. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, first time uh, in in the number one position here. So, but as you say, I mean, a lot of this is perception, not just how other countries perceive other countries, and in this case, Canada, but also how Canadians perceive themselves then, and then how people in other countries perceive themselves. Exactly, and and so uh, this year we added some attributes uh, that I think we can all agree that the past twelve, thirteen, fourteen months has been historic, not necessarily in a good way, but because of the right. pandemic how countries have responded to the health care crisis, uh, economic crisis, and the calls for so- social justice. So we, in addition to asking about, would you like to study in this country? Do you want to visit this country? Do you want to invest in this country? We also ask people about how adaptable countries are. Uh, where do you see this country in terms of providing racial equality, commitment to climate goals? And so that had a, a big impact on Canada moving up from number two to number, number one overall. So we get, for example, quality of life, where Canada ranks number one in, in social purpose. So I, I think those two categories cover some of what you talked about, but, but talk a bit about what, what those are meant to encompass or what they refer to. Sure. So quality of life is, is really getting at how a country is seen as being stable and a safe society where individuals can develop, can reach their maximum, where they can proper, prosper. Rather, um, Social purpose tends to be societies that are open, fair, and equitable for all. And so when we look at some of these rankings and the results and where Canada stands, um, they're number one, like you say, in quality of life, social purpose. It's also seen as being the best country in terms of having a good job market, caring about human rights, commitment to social justice, not being corrupt, uh, providing racial equity, and respecting property rights. So all of those really had a, had a factor in terms of pushing the country up to number one. Now, you and Canadians, as you, as you mentioned, you may or may not disagree with it. But that is how the rest of the world is seeing Canada. Well, it's interesting. And again, I mean, as you say, the, these perceptions can matter in the real world, right, when it comes to, to economic issues. Well, what do you see as, as the overlap between, you know, how a country scores in these kinds of areas versus, you know, the, the potential economic impact from, from having that sort of reputation? Well, you know, it's, it's a good point. And, you know, if, if a country is seen as a good place to live or a good place to study, 
it's going to draw more interest uh, from international students or from companies who may want to move and have a business presence, which could in turn affect employment as well. So you're exactly right. Um, perceptions do have an impact on reality, and these rankings can guide governments to say, see where they need to improve. And again, the interesting thing about this is this is qualitative data. It's people's opinions. Now, Canada may be seen as being really good at this or really bad at that, but maybe the opposite is true. And so that that informs government leaders, uh, people in business, and citizens, hey, we're not getting out the message that we need to get out to the rest of the world. That's interesting. And, and I wonder, too, when we talk about, you know, I mean, political stability, and there are a lot of issues that fall into that category, and just, you know, the perception is whether a country is, is safe. And safety might might be linked to, you know, just how, how politically stable a country is, but I, maybe that also speaks to, you know, perceptions around crime. Is that, does that kind of cover both, both sides of that? Political stability in terms of, it, it, it gets to a bit of safety, but it also gets to, um, it really gets to um, people's opinions about, okay, no matter which party is in, in government, uh, government is working and people are able to talk to each other. Uh, you're not seeing the gridlock. You know, I'm sure that <clears throat> you would have uh, information on this that that may counter otherwise, but you certainly don't see the political gridlock in Canada that you do see in the United States. And so, whereas Canada is seen as a very politically stable country, the U.S. actually dropped from 24 last year to 28. And I'm sure that we can all see <laughs> the events of the past few months, let alone last few years, affecting the global public opinion of the United States as a politically stable country. Well, which suggests maybe maybe some of that is is likely to change going forward. Now, in terms of the reaction, I suppose you know if if you're doing interviews in Canada, I'm sure everyone's going to you know praise all of this and uh, this is a great great report and and we love the results, but. Um, I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I would think that, you know, the idea of ranking countries, people notice, and uh, I would imagine maybe anyone who's not number one might might take some issue with with all of this. What tends to be the reaction, um, you know, to this latest report and, and in previous years? Well, we get reactions from, from all sides. I've already been kindly invited to the embassy of a country that finished at the bottom of the rankings. I received mm -hmm. that invitation today. Um <laughs> But, you know, the interesting thing as a journalist, for me, one of the interesting things about putting out these rankings is to explore that space between perception and reality. And we've already received emails today from Canadians who are saying that we're off our, our, our chair. <laughs> Canada shouldn't be the number one country. It doesn't take care of its old people. It's having problems with vaccine rollout. Yeah. And so that informs us as potential stories to do, to explore that space between global perceptions of a country and what's really going on. We have a piece, for example, today from a Canadian journalist that's looking at the very slow and problematic vaccine rollout, especially within the country's First Nations communities. And mm -hmm. so you're exactly right. This is an opportunity for us to not just do a rah-rah piece, but to really look at countries more in depth and provide that information to a global audience. Yeah, absolutely. Well, much more on those stories and, of course, uh, the rankings at usnews.com. Kevin, thanks so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate this. All right. Take care. All the best. You as well. Uh, there you go. That is uh, Kevin Drew, U.S. News Assistant Managing Editor for International News, talking about what goes into this report. So, look, he's not sitting here saying that objectively Canada is better than any country on the face of the planet. 
And again, a lot of this comes down to perception. How are we perceived? And I guess that's a good thing uh, that we're perceived well in other countries. And maybe that's not a surprise, right? The whole stereotype about the, uh, you know, the maple leaf on the backpack sort of thing. Um, so anyway, so, okay, we're perceived well by the countries. Canadians have a, a good perception of our own country for the most part. But look, obviously things aren't perfect here. Certainly not by any stretch. And I, I do wonder, you know, how next year's rankings might be impacted by some of the challenges that we're facing uh, right now in terms of vaccine rollout or, you know, our struggle to contain this this pandemic. So if you're curious, the uh, top 10 countries in the world, you got the champ, Canada, the number one contender, Japan. Uh, then you got Germany, Switzerland, Australia, the United States, New Zealand, United Kingdom, Sweden, and the Netherlands. All nice countries, sure. I mean, I, there's a couple on there I, I might prefer to be in at the moment. But look, you know, Certainly nothing wrong with any of those countries. So what do you make of the notion that uh, Canada is at the top of this list? Would you put a, a different country at the top of that list? And it is true. Look, I mean, we have perceptions about the United States. Maybe we're closer to, to being able to follow what goes on day to day in, in our neighbors to the south. But if you have a favorable opinion of, uh, say, Sweden or Australia... You know, what is that based on? And, and do you really fully understand the various issues they're dealing with or grappling with in, in that country? And do people who say nice things about Canada or think nice things about Canada, do they really know what's going on here? There's no question that uh, the airline industry has been hard hit by everything we've been dealing with uh, over the past year. Although certainly, I mean, the airlines are and, and have been operating. There are some measures in place that are probably aimed at discouraging travel, the uh, testing, the quarantine, etc. But nonetheless, uh, there are still flights in operation. But obviously, it's nowhere near normal. It's nowhere near what it was before the pandemic, and it's meant big losses for the airlines. So we knew something like this was coming. We've got confirmation now that the federal government is going to be supporting Air Canada. It's a $6 billion financial support package, and there are some strings attached here. Uh, so there needs to be some guarantees for refunds for flights canceled as a result of the pandemic. Uh, Air Canada needs to restore some regional routes that have previously been suspended. Uh, there is some expectation of job protection uh, for employees. Uh, so the feds are certainly asking for something in return here. It's not just a blank check, but it's certainly a considerable amount of financial support for Air Canada. What does this mean for competitors? Is WestJet uh, up next uh, and, and other smaller airlines? And this is what the industry needs. So uh, joining us for some further thoughts on uh, how it got to this point, why it's taken so long to come up with the deal and what it means for Canada, what it means for the industry. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Carl Moore, Associate Professor, Strategy and Organization at McGill University. Professor Moore, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. My pleasure. I mean, it does feel, I mean, this is more than a year into the pandemic, and we've kind of been talking about some financial aid for the airline industry almost right from the get-go. Why, why do you think it's taken until this point? Well, it's an interesting question because when you look at what's been done in the U.S., uh, Europe, parts of the Middle East, and Asia, and even Latin America, Canada's been lagging behind. 
the countries would, would normally, you know, be at a similar level to. So it's something where I'm not sure why it's taken so long, but at this point, it's done at least for Canada. So uh, let's not worry about it at this point. But the question remains, what does WestJet get, Porter, uh, Air Transat, and so on, some of the other airlines in Canada is an open question. And I think, you know, there's a debate going back and forth across the country a little bit about some of the uh, aspects of it. But it strikes me overall as a good deal for Canada and for Air Canada as well. So what, what do you like about it then? Well, something where it gives them financial support when they need it. Um, like we're beginning to come out of it. Now, the U.S. and China people look there and they have uh, are quite a bit ahead of us in terms of the airline industry. But they have huge domestic markets where you can travel within the U.S. You don't need um, to go to border controls. You don't need to quarantine and things like that. So not the best analogy, but Canada's domestic market is much smaller than the U.S. or China. And what Canada needs is the ability of Canadians, business and uh, tourists, uh, people visiting family to get to leave our country, and perhaps more importantly, foreign business people, tourists coming and visiting us. So that's what really is a big part of the industry here in Canada. And until we have the healthcare side, you know, people being vaccine, vaccinated in large numbers, and you know, vaccine passports, things like that, um, it's still going to be probably a number two, three, four years till we get back even close to where we were January a year ago. So it's something where uh, very tough times, toughest times in aviation history. It's beginning to improve, but it's going to be a long road back. And it really is around the healthcare side of it to a, a very considerable degree. So this kind of financial support makes a big difference. This is clearly a negotiation, right? And obviously, uh, you know, there were some expectations that the federal government had. This wasn't just going to be a blank check. So what do you make about some of those concessions, some of uh, some of those expectations for Air Canada in return for this support? Well, I think the Canadian government did a good job. When you look at the kind of things that they got from them were the things that were clearly the issues on the minds of a lot of Canadians. And there's a guy named Michael, Michael Sabe, who was a senior government guy who was called Captain Canada, he ran the, the during the referendum back in the day, uh, the federal response to the Quebec referendum. He went on to be CFO at uh, with Paul Tellier at CN, then ran Bell, CEO, and then ran the Case Depot, the huge investment fund uh, out of out of Montreal. So I, I know him fairly well, had him come to class many times. I think I see his fine hand here because he really understands the government side, been there back in the government, but he also understands uh, the private sector, the business side as well. And they got some of the key things we're looking. One was refunds to people who were owed money. So that was a big political issue. Second was uh, flights to um, Atlantic Canada and far north and so on where they had been cancelled, mainly because there weren't enough people on the planes. So at a certain point, if you don't have 60 70% load uh, you know, the, of the planes filled percentage, you shouldn't fly because you're losing money. It's not a good idea. You can do it occasionally. Maybe Sundays things are a little bit quieter, but by and large, in the average, you've got to have enough um, people on the planes to make money from that. They may also you know, cancel some of the flights of pressure on the government through the premiers and the, and the city mayors and all. Uh, they also... Um, got an equity position through warrants, a potential equity position, 
in Air Canada. And so if Air Canada's share price goes up, it should, if we look at the U.S., what's happening down there is as, as the industry improves, Ottawa then can point out to Canadians that uh, the government made a good investment on our behalf and it's paid off well. So as Air Canada's done well and prospered, so is the government. It's not just a loan where they pay you back and we, we're done. There's actually an equity part, but thankfully not an equity part where they get to have people on the board and they get to try to run the airline. One of the great lessons of human history is that business is good at some things, government at others. Government's not good at running airlines. They should let the airline people run them. And I, the pod, and the final point is, which is interesting, is the environmental side of it. Now, this is something that Ottawa is pushing and occasionally from an Alberta viewpoint excessively. Um, but the airline industry has been thinking about this. It's a, it's a big issue among my students and young people particularly, but increasingly older people like myself. What is the environmental impact of flying? So I have a trip I take with students every year. We're supposed to, next year we'll probably go to Africa again. And we'll look at making it a carbon neutral trip. So the airline industry understands that. And the Bombardier and Airbus and the other plane makers have got planes which produce less pollution, both air pollution and noise pollution. So it's something where that was politically correct for the government to do. But the airline industry goes that we can lean into that because that's something that we're concerned about as well. So an interesting uh, and, and more complex package than one would have seen a year ago or six months ago even. So is that why we're seeing then, you know, the, these like bilateral talks as opposed to, to Ottawa dealing with all the airlines at once or saying, here's how we're going to help the industry, that, that it needs to be done this way and whatever might uh, come for WestJet, that it's going to be more tailored to, to WestJet situation? Well, well part of like WestJet, one is that it's, uh, it's owned by, by uh, Jerry Schwartz and Onyx. Right. So it's privately held, and uh, I've met Jerry in a number of times, uh, interviewed him. I've interviewed his wife, who runs uh, Heather, who runs Indigo. So know them a bit. Very sharp investor. Very good business person. But it's privately held, which means it's going to be a different thing where they're not going to get a equity stake or warrants in the in the case of Air Canada. So you take a different approach. Plus, it's a different airline. It, no longer an upstart. I mean, it's, it was uh, 30 years ago or something now. And I've, I think I've interviewed all four of the last, and including the current CEO of both Air Canada and WestJet. Different culture, different approach. And I think you have to take a different approach in terms of how you structure the deal. Now, part of it is Air Canada is the biggie. WestJet is a very important player, but Air Canada is a big one. And maybe partly to let Canadians know the kind of support they're going to have to give to business for Canada's, or Canada's economy rather to go forward. And there's a big budget next week. And it may be yeah. one of the most interesting budgets in Canadian history. And it'll be a controversial one because the sheer amount of support they're giving to business and other ones. So this may have been kind of a shot across the bow so that we get thinking that this, they're going to have to give a lot of support to a lot of people for the Canadian economy to prosper and to support the population economically. So this may be an element of it, but I think that you've got to tailor to WestJet and the Porter, which has been closed since, what, March of last year. They're not going to open the announce till June. So different companies, different needs to some degree. There's going to be quite a bit in common. I do wonder how existential 
is the situation at the moment. If the federal government had said to the airlines, look, you guys figure out, you know, figure this all out for yourselves. We're, we're not we're not handed over taxpayer dollars. I mean, you know, what what was the crisis that they were potentially staring down here? And, and would they have been able to survive, do you think? Well, they're not giving money away. It's loans. You've got to pay it back. Right. So it's not as the same as some airlines in the U.S. and elsewhere have just been given money. And that, that, so it's a little bit better from that viewpoint. Uh, on the other hand, it's low interest rates and stuff like that. You know, we're in a time of low interest rates, but there's some nice parts to it for sure. But essentially, it's the worst time in aviation history. And I've talked to some, you know, men and women in their 70s and 80s who have been around a long time, and they've never seen anything like it in this industry. So I talked to a guy who was the former CEO of, I, of uh, Cathay Pacific, now the, then the CEO of IATA. Now he's back in Hong Kong. My students, I met with him two years ago. So I talked to Tony. They'd never seen anything like it. So given that we're in unbelievable times, and it looks like it's going to take a while to dig it out of it, we have to ask ourselves in Canada, do we need an airline industry? Given we live in the second largest country in the world, which is underpopulated relative to the U.S. or China because of our weather. We all understand that. You live in Calgary. We just got out of winter, and I live in Montreal. We have a relatively small population. You're not going to drive from Montreal to Calgary for a one-hour meeting or two-hour meeting. You do it once in, in your life with the family to see relatives or something. It's a long, long way. And if you think from St. John's to Victoria, like unbelievable how many days of, of driving that would take, we have a huge country. We need an airline industry. And we have really important industries, which brings uh, foreign business people to Canada and Canadian business people outside, and a huge tourism industry. You think of, you know, um, the Stampede. You think of uh, Banff and Jasper and how many tourists that draws because it's one of the most beautiful parts of the world. Airline is a very important industry. It's a vital industry to Canada's economy and our future. Clearly is. So we'll see what uh, comes next in all of this. Appreciate your insight uh, here today, Professor Moore. Thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure. Bye-bye now. All right. Take care. Uh, that is uh, Carl Moore at uh, McGill University, the uh, Desautel Faculty of Management, uh, where he's uh, Associate Professor of uh, Strategy and Organization, somebody who focuses on the airline industry. So, so he likes what he sees in a lot of this. And, you know, much of this is structured in, in loans, favorable terms, mind you, but loans nonetheless, and some expectation then that if, uh, you know, you're going to come asking, we're going to ask some things of you here. So I don't know. I mean, <laughs> at some level, when, when you look at Ottawa kind of telling Air Canada, here's what you need to do, and here's where we want you running routes to, and uh, decisions about personnel, I mean, it's, it does have a feel almost like nationalization light in a way. But ultimately, it's certainly set up so the federal government can wash its hands of all of this. But how strategic do you see the airline industry being? I mean, at the moment, it's crucial. If Air Canada and WestJet went out of business, I mean, what's left to fly any domestic routes? I mean, what's the upstart flare? But otherwise, that's it. I mean, we have rules in place that, you know, Delta or Southwest or, you know, foreign airlines, you know, they can land here. They can fly you to other places, but you're not going to fly a, an American airline from Calgary to Toronto. I'm sure they'd be willing to do it, uh, but they're not allowed to at the moment. So we've, we've made that decision uh, to have Canadian airlines flying Canadian routes. 
And I guess in order to ensure that there still are Canadian airlines, the approach the government has taken here. So WestJet certainly not being overlooked, as pointed out here, that this is about doing these negotiations with the individual companies. And yeah, I guess it's fair to say, I mean, we think of WestJet as, as ours, as our baby, as, you know, it's WestJet, it's Western Canada. Um, not so much anymore. I mean, Jerry Schwartz is from Manitoba. I guess that's kind of sort of in the West, but uh, yeah, Onyx Corporation headquartered in Toronto. You know, we talked a lot about it this week. There is, uh, you know, certainly a, a growing division within the United Conservative Party uh, over COVID health restrictions. And I think more broadly, I mean, kind of, I, I don't know, a, a lack of faith, a lack of trust in, in Jason Kenney. So Jason Kenney was very much, you know, the engine that, that drove conservative reunification in Alberta. And ironically enough, he could be the one that's kind of at the center of it splintering again. And what's interesting, when you look at Alberta, this, this kind of infighting seems a lot more common here than, than you see in other provinces. And I suppose that speaks to the nature of Alberta politics. Uh, well, someone who can certainly speak to, to all of that, a keen observer of Alberta politics and uh, co-authored a, an article this week looking at this uh, exact phenomenon is uh, our friend Dwayne Bratt, who's a uh, professor of political science at Mount Royal University. Dwayne, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Hey, Rob. Good to be here. Uh, so, I mean, how, first of all, in terms of how serious this is, right? I mean, we've seen in the past, uh, you know, new parties created, floor crossings, uh, all of it. Are, are we getting close to that at this point, do you think? Well, to, to see 17 people in the UCP caucus sign a public letter uh, criticizing the government over its COVID restrictions, that's, that's pretty serious in my mind. And, I mean, when we think back to other parallels, you know, it, uh, it it took Len Weber and Donna Candy Glantz to um, PC MLAs to criticize Premier Alison Redford, and pretty soon Alison Redford was was gone. Um, there is the, the the arrival of the uh, Wild Rose Independence Party. Uh, it emerged after the federal election in 2019. But there's sort of a game of chicken going on right now amongst the the rebels and and the rest of the government. They haven't left. They haven't crossed the floor and sat as independents, as we've seen in the past. They haven't formed their own party. They haven't joined Wild Rose Independence. And they haven't been kicked out by Jason Kenney. So they're kind of at a standoff right now trying to see which way this this will go. Yeah, it's, it's certainly interesting how things have changed because, you know, Jason Kenney was, as I said, I mean, he was really the one who made a lot of this happen. I don't know if anybody else could have, you know, won two leadership races, you know, brought together these two parties. Oh, he's and, he's and the architect right? of this party. There, there's yeah. no doubt about that. And you would say, well, you know, it was inevitable that they would merge after the NDP's uh, victory in 2015. Yeah. I think it would be inevitable, but would have it have happened this quickly? So, right. for example, when the federal progressive conservatives split apart with reform in the West and a, and a rump PC in Ontario and Atlantic provinces, it took three straight majority governments right. um, and then another by-election defeat before they uh, merged. So it took well over a decade. This occurred within a couple of years. So this is Jason Kenney's party, but there were these underlying tensions within them uh, throughout that I think the pandemic 
and dropping popularity of the premier has brought to the forefront. Yeah, and it's interesting, though, because you're right. I mean, it, it did feel like his party, and it did feel like, you know, this this whole process was kind of riding his coattails. But that, that luster seems gone, right? He, he, he doesn't seem to have the same kind of sway over his base that, that he did a few years ago. No, and when you look at the, the 17, it's not a representative sample of the mm-hmm. UCP. They're all rural or small city um, MLAs. You don't see any Calgary ones. There's only one in Edmonton, and he's in cabinet. But if you remove sort of the rural cabinet ministers, and then you remove sort of some of the satellite communities around Edmonton, you know, it's a pretty high percentage of, of rural MLAs who have you know, signed on to this. And several of them, like a Drew Barnes, like a Mark Smith, used to be members of the Wild Rose Party. So they were elected under a different party. They're, they're not just UCP MLAs. And for others, they've seen this game before. And they know that it's possible to, to win without being part of sort of the mainstream conservative party. The example has yeah. been set. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, a lot of this seems temporary. Like, presumably, a lot of these COVID debates are going to kind of be a moot point, maybe later this year, next year, whenever, at some point. But there's still, I think, some lingering issues. I mean, there's been some frustration that the premier hasn't been tough enough on Ottawa or prepared to push the envelope far enough on on those issues. And maybe hasn't had enough of a conservative agenda. Like, how much of, of these issues go away once the pandemic goes away? Oh, I think some of these issues will go. I mean, once we get the vaccination rates and we start to see the reopening of the economy and the restrictions start to limit, I think a lot of these will go away. I think one that won't is the religious right. Uh, I think what has gone on at the Grace Life Church, that's going to be tough for them to, to forget. Um, but my larger point here is not so much about the pandemic and not so much about these particular issues. Those were the triggers, is that mm-hmm. there's an underlying issue amongst a, uh, a big tent conservative party that has so many different factions and has a history, particularly in this province, of, of breaking apart and then coming back to, together again that we don't see in other political parties. And while there are some examples outside of Alberta, think of the Saskatchewan Party, for example, or think of the current B.C. Liberal Party. It's predominant in this province. There's something in the water here um, amongst conservatives that, that lead to this phenomenon. Well, is it is it the perception that Alberta is a more conservative province? So almost the idea that, that you can afford to you know, rock the boat a little bit, right? That that maybe conservatives feel a little safer to, uh, you know, to voice their displeasure over certain things. Oh, yeah, I think that's, I think that is part of it. If if you're in other provinces and you've got a, a group of conservatives sitting around a bar or a coffee shop and they're complaining about their political opponents, they would be talking about the, the liberals or they'd be talking about the NDP, depending on which jurisdiction you're in. But in Alberta, they're often talking about other conservatives not being as conservative as they are, or that they're too interested in power and they're willing to give up their principles, or they're more focused on the fiscal side and not the social side, or vice versa. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the challenges that, yes, you know, we did see an NDP government for four years, 
But outside of that, you go back to, you know, the 1930s to today, it's been conservative dominance <clears throat> provincially and federally. Yeah, it's it's fascinating, too, because, you know, I think there are and we're seeing a lot of things that when you get fiscal conservatives, social conservatives, you know, populists uh, all in, in the same room, they're going to disagree on a lot of things. You know, when when the argument was Rachel Notley is bad, well, everybody's on board, right? Everybody's yeah. in agreement. Yeah, we got to defeat the NDP. Uh, but yeah, once once that job is done, it's it's harder to to rally everybody around a, a certain cause, isn't it? Well, and the interesting part though is Rachel Notley and the NDP have not gone away, right? Yeah, so you form your party to defeat her. Well, there's successive polling showing the NDP, led by Rachel Notley, would win an election if it was held today. So you would think that that would bring people, keep them in the fold. And that's not occurring. So either they don't believe that the NDP is a real threat, which I think would be a mistake, or they would focus more on the principle than on being in power. And there may be some of these members, particularly in the... In the, in the group that signed the letter, that may feel more freedom to be in the opposition where you don't have to compromise as much as when you're the government of the problem. Yeah, and I, I think that's part of it. And I mean, you know, that there, there's something to be said, I suppose, for valuing principle over power. Oh, there, there is, it's right. there is I mean, something it's, for that. Yeah, and, yeah. and, you know, it's when we look at other parties, so we often joke, um, <clears throat> you know, that the liberals don't have principles that you know the, the liberal party will will fluctuate depending on the on the days mm-hmm. but members of the ndp federally they sure have principles but you don't see them splitting apart like you do with the conservatives yeah it's fascinating to watch we'll see where it all goes from here Dwayne, always yeah. appreciate it thanks for making some time for us here this afternoon okay thanks rob all right cheers Dwayne bratt political science professor at Mount Royal University and uh, as mentioned had an interesting piece this week kind of looking at where there's been some history around that uh, in Alberta where that uh, sort of infighting has boiled over into you know floor crossings new parties that sort of thing I, I don't know if we're there yet and I think part of it has been maybe the willingness on both sides to accept the other right Jason Kenney hasn't kicked anybody out of caucus nobody has left caucus but maybe we're close to the breaking point one way or another. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.